A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode about Rav Yehuda Amital, his life and legacy in honor of his 13th yard site, 27 Tammuz, this year, 2023. So this podcast is sponsored by Yeshivat Haaretzion, commonly known as the Gush. The Yeshiva of Yehuda Amital pioneered in the wake of the Six-Day War and led as Rosh Yeshiva for over 40 years. It is sponsored in his memory and to help perpetuate the story of a visionary who lived through the entire gamut of Jewish history in the 20th century and re-landscaped the Israeli Torah world. He formulated a religious Zionist identity for tens of thousands of Talmidim while laboring to maintain the union between religious and secular in Israel. He was born as Yidl Klein. Uh, Amital was taken on much later. And he um, grew up in Grosvardian um, uh, in, in Transylvania. It was, was the area, was the district. It was sometimes in Hungary, it was sometimes in Romania, depended on the year. His great-grandfather was actually a student of the Chassam Seifer. They were a very simple family. They were proud of his, he was proud of his family's simplicity. His father, Zalman, was the community bookkeeper in, Trans, in uh, Grosvardian. And his mother, Dvor, ran a soup kitchen. They were an Oberland, non-Hasidic family, but they were at the same time close with Vizhnitz, because Vizhnitz was in Grosvardian um, at that time after World War One, And many of his family members actually moved to the land of Israel before the war. His grandparents, a bunch of aunts and uncles, and he later reconnected with them when he arrived in Israel after the war because he was the only one who survived from his immediate family. So he reconnected with this uh, branch of the family, including his grandparents, who had moved there uh, before the war. Um, in any event, he went to Cheder locally in Grosvardian. He also, which I found uh, funny, was that he had a couple of, like, I think three or four years of formal schooling. And that was the extent of his general education for the rest of his life. He never even went to high school. He, uh, he definitely never went to university. Um, and, um, he, but he was in yeshiva his whole life. So he was a completely a yeshiva, a bismedrish person. But for someone who, in his later years, was so involved in public activism and public policy and leadership, it's quite astounding how it was all natural talent and basically no formal education. His family was relatively poor. They struggled a bit. 
But when he was a teenager, a fellow named Reb Chaim Yehuda Levi arrived in Grosvardian, and he himself was a descendant of the Chassam Seifer, but he had left the Hungarian yeshivas, and he had gone to Lita, to Lithuania, to the Litvish area of Poland to study in yeshivas, and he had gone to Mir, to the Mir yeshiva. And he came back to Hungary, and he was very had been very taken by the Lithuanian style and approach to to learning, and he decided to disseminate that in Hungary, and he opened a Lithuanian-style yeshiva in Grosvardian, which Yidl Klein attended. See, that's what he was exposed to, the Litvish-style yeshiva in, in, in Hungary, and he remained there until uh, the Nazis came to to Hungary. The Nazi invasion of Hungary was, of course, in March 1944. It's towards the end of the war. He recalled a debate among the townspeople whether to f- attempt to flee to Romania. And he, at this young age, he's all of uh, um, 18, 19 at the time, um, he was already expressed at this time this, his practical side. Throughout his life, he was very pragmatic, very practical, very realistic. Um, and he said, he said, um, he said, first of all, why is it safer in Romania? Who says it's safer? It happened to be it was, but we know that with hindsight. Um, so he said, who, say, who said it's going to be safer in Romania? And he also said, and this also because he was a man of the people, he wasn't part of the elite, he said not everyone has connections. Not everyone can has bribe money to make the trip to Romania. So how can you go ahead and say everyone should flee to Romania when you know that it's not even at all possible? So the reason I repeat repeat that story sometimes on trips and stuff is because the first of all the unknown the debate that you that that victims that that under Nazi occupation it was very difficult to make the right decision because there was no right decision and beyond that the idea that not everyone has access to the same escape routes that other people have. In any event, he stays in Grosvardian, ends up in the ghetto like everyone else, and he's taken for forced labor in the interim, ahead of his family, and his family is deported to his, to, excuse me, to Auschwitz while he was gone, while he was at forced labor. None of the members of his family survived the Holocaust. He was the sole survivor of his family. Um, while he was in the labor camp, he uh, recalled um, all kinds of things, mechanisms that he did to try to help him survive and get by um, during those. It was only f- several months. It was uh, that's from that spring, from about May until October. So it was about half a year or so. Um, and he um, he recalled um, um, uh, getting a, a an, another shirt. I think he took it off. Um, like either a dead body, or he found it in storage, or he had an he had a second shirt at some point. And what he would do with the you know a prisoner shirt, like you know a camp shirt. And what he would do was that on Friday afternoon he would switch shirts, and he would say Lekavid Shabbos. This is my doing something. Now both of them, I assume, were uh, you know were just regular shirts. And but but the idea that he would switch it um, for Shabbos kept him reminded him who he was and and that he was able to honor Shabbos in that way. He was even, again, you have to remember, this was a labor camp in Hungary. This was not a concentration camp. This was not an Auschwitz type of camp. So the conditions were 
somewhat better, especially regarding what you were able to smuggle in. So he was able to smuggle in things that in most camps it was not really possible. So he was able to smuggle in some of his own sfarim. He brought a Tanakh and a Mishnayis. He also uh, said he was especially inspired by bringing along Rav Kook's Sefer, Rav Yitzchak Kook's Sefer, Mishnah Sarav. Even at this young age, he was already inspired by the writings of Rav Kook. He eventually was returned to the ghetto in Grosfardian. He witnessed deportation trains to Auschwitz. At that point, he said, uh, later on, he would, he would say about seeing the uh, trains uh, deporting with men, women, and children uh, to be killed at the gas chambers in Auschwitz. He said, I said I, I, he said, I saw Hashem's hand in the Holocaust, in all the horror, but I did not understand it. In other words, he was able to see the Yad Hashem, the Hashgacha of Hashem, the omnipresence there, and even though you don't understand it, it was not something that he could understand, but that didn't diminish his faith. In fact, many years later, he had a discussion once with Abba Kovner, the famous Israeli poet who had been in the Vilna ghetto and in the partisans and the resistance. Um, he, uh, Kovner, was very secular, he said to Rav Amital, he said, how can you believe in God? And Rav Amital responded, how can you believe in man? You believe in humanity, in, in, in man. And after you see what man is capable of doing, how can you believe in man? And then Rav Amital says to him, I believe in God, even though I don't understand him, but we're supposed to understand man. So that's a bigger issue. Um, so in his later years, one of his primary, one of Rav Amital's primary disputes with Rav Tzvi Yehuda Cook and the Rav Tzvi Yehuda Cook crowd, primarily his students, um, and he had many disputes with them, was the relevance of Rav Cook Sr., Rav Tzihuda's father, Rav Yitzchak Cook, uh, about his writings and his vision that we're witnessing the beginning of the redemption, the beginning of the Geula. Rav Amital, in his later years, he, he went along with that for many, many years, through the 60s, through the 70s, and then he started to have his doubts, and he changed his position, and he said... Um, Rev. Cook said that it's the beginning of the redemption, but then the Holocaust came. Um, and one time he said it, uh, he included it with World War II. He said the World War II, Hiroshima, and the final solution against the Jewish people, the Holocaust came after Rev. Cook called our time period the beginning of the Gula, the beginning of the redemption. So he said it seems that Rev. Cook made a mistake because we have to contend with the reality of the Holocaust. We have to take the Holocaust into account before we just parrot what Rev. Cook said, who did not see the Holocaust, because we live in a different world after the Holocaust happened. Um, and unlike many others, he did not see a cause and effect between the proximity between the Holocaust and the establishment of the State of Israel. To him, the Holocaust was unexplainable, and the State of Israel was, a, in his view, a, a, a most incredible miracle and something to celebrate, but the two are not related. Um, and he, the most he conceded to any relation between the two was definitely not any causal effect, um, but he conceded that it was a kindness of Hashem to provide the State of Israel after the horror and the destruction of the Holocaust, at least as a place of refuge for survivors to rebuild their shattered lives after what they had experienced. There's tons to say about his view of the Holocaust and the impact that the Holocaust had on its thinking. Like I said, an entire book has been written on the topic. So there's lots more to say. We'll save it for another time. And 
As we go along uh, through the rest of the podcast, I'll probably mention it in a couple of more instances. Um, at times, he was evil during this time in the labor camp. He was even able to abstain from eating non-kosher food. Uh, there were times he was able to do that. There were times he was not able to. He was even able to at his last position in the labor camp, where there was seems to be, have been much more lax. Um, he was able to re- receive a work exemption for Shabbos. Given the nature of the labor camps in Hungary, it was very different than concentration camps such as Auschwitz. Um, the Red Army liberated the area around Sukkot's time in 1944, about October, but it took some time until the full danger had passed. He returns to Grosvardian. He then crossed the border into Romania. Um, and uh, and he stayed there for quite some time until he was able to immigrate to Israel. It was during this time that he started to think about what he had gone through, and one of the ideas that he developed, he formulated later on, was that as a result of the Holocaust was his appreciation for being the victim and not the perpetrator. He would often state how never in his life did he recite the blessing of Shaloy Asani Gai, and not making me a non-Jew with such feeling and meaning than during the Holocaust, because he said it's always preferable to be the murdered and not the murderer. Um, this idea, too, would eventually impact his left-leaning political thinking later in life when the shadow of the Holocaust would impact him in kind of a delayed trauma, especially when he would talk about the Shatila sub the Sabran Shatila massacres in the First Lebanon War, and uh, where he felt that uh, that the 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 visions of the Holocaust were coming back, and he spoke about it's better to be the victim and not the perpetrator, or at least you know have some sort of responsibility. Obviously, Israel was not the perpetrator in that massacre, but he felt that there was some element of responsibility. Once someone asked him shortly after his arrival in the Holy Land, "Do you still believe in God? Are you still religious?" To which he answered, "Had I lost my faith, would I have answers? No." So I remain with my faith, and I remain with the questions. And I always thought that was so profound. He preferred to remain with the questions, but with a very strong faith. And the questions do not alter his faith at all. In fact, his biography, as I mentioned, is titled By Faith Alone, because that became so much part of his persona. Now, the Holocaust would cast its long shadow over his life and leadership of Rabbi Yudha Amital. In many ways, it was gradual. It only intensified later on, first after the Yom Kippur War, when he lost eight students um, during the war, and even more so in the 1980s and 90s. So he um, somehow makes it to Palestine in December 1945. Like I said, he had relatives there. He was already 20 years old and after the war, so it made sense for him to seek out a, a job, some sort of employment. But he surprised everyone by coming to a decision on his own that he's going to attend yeshiva, which is quite rare for a survivor of his age to go ahead and do after the war. Not that many stories of that happening. Now, because of his affinity for Rav Cook and his writings, already from as a youth, he started off in Merkaz Harav, but he was disappointed that there was not much going on there. It was, wasn't so exciting, so he switched very shortly afterwards to the Hebron Yeshiva. Um, and even in Hebron, where he stayed for a few years, he was a bit of an independent spirit, and he continued studying the works of Rav Kook. And despite the fact that he had a good relationship with the Russia Yeshiva of Hebron at the time, Rabbi Aaron Koyen, Rabbi Chatzkel Sarna, who were 
um, who were the Rosh Yeshiva of Chavrin at the time, and Rabbi Meishe Chavrini, he also sought out Rabbi Yaakov Meishe Charlap, who was the primary student of Rav Kook, and other students of Chavrin did that at the time as well. I mentioned that in my podcast on Rav Charlap, and he actually, um, Rav Amital got very close with Rav Charlap. He's still Yiddel Klein, by the way, at this time. Um, he, uh, he, while he was in Chavrin, he joined the Haganah underground, um, though others in Hebron joined the Irgun, or the Stern Gang, he preferred associating with the establishment. So he joined the Haganah. And again, this salient feature would continue throughout his life. You stick with the establishment, you stick with the main, the mainstream, the government, especially in his later years when he stuck with the Labor Party and Yitzhak Rabin, um, and he was almost ostracized by the mainstream national religious community for taking uh, the side of the left and labor and Rabin and supporting the Oslo Accords in the 1990s. But even then, in Hebron, he joins the Haganah, not the Irgun. Um, he ended up in Pardes Chano one summer seeking work, uh, just like a, you know, just during summer vacation. Instead of finding a job, he met the rabbi of Pardes Chano, who was um, Reb Tzvi Yehuda Meltzer, who was the son of Reb Zalman Meltzer. Um, and Reb Tzvi Yehuda was the Rosh Hashiva of Kletsk in Paradis Chana, right? Reb Zalman, his father, was Rosh first in Slutsk, and then Kletsk, and of course Kletsk in Europe was Reb Aaron Cutler, Reb Tzvi Yehuda's brother-in-law, and he opened the branch in Paradis Chana. Later on, it was in Rehovot, when Reb Tzvi Yehuda moved to Rehovot, where he served as rabbi there. And though his father, Rabbi Zalman, headed the Agudas Yisrael, Rabbi Tzvi Yehuda associated with Mizrahi, and he was very impressed with this young yeshiva student, or, uh, this young Yidel Klein from Hebron. And soon, Yidel Klein got married to Miriam Meltzer, the daughter of Rabbi Tzvi Yehuda. And he soon developed a very close relationship with his wife's grandfather, Rabbi Zalman Meltzer. By now, they're living in Rehovot. He's teaching in the yeshiva there, the Kletzk Rehovot, which is... Yeshivat HaDarom, eventually it's called, and um, he enlists in the military with, with the, you know, he celebrates the establishment of the State of Israel, and then goes ahead and enlists in the military and fights in the War of Independence. Um, in the army, too, he also attempted to generate a positive Jewish atmosphere with Shabbos and Torah classes. It was around this time that he decided to Hebraicize his name, which was quite a common practice at the time, and he chose Amital based on a Pasuk and Micha, which describes being a survivor who's rescued by Hashem. So he made a conscious decision to enshrine in his very name his essence as a survivor and all that entails. And after he made that switch, he discussed it with Rabbi Zalman, who gave his approval. And following his military service, he then returns to the base Medrash and he received smicha from Rabbi Zalman. And he was served for a short time under Rehovot Bezdin as a secretary. And then he becomes a Rebbe in Kletzk Rehovot and its affiliate, Yeshivat Hadarom. And he was a Rebbe there for over 10 years. Um, and during that time, he oversaw the opening of, of Yeshivat Hadarom as a Hezder Yeshiva. And it was either the first Hezder Yeshiva or one of the first, because there's a dispute in the Hezder world whether Kerem B'Yavna is the first, or Yeshivat Hadarom was the first. But in any event, it was one of the first, and it was his suggestion, actually, and it was adopted by his father-in-law, Rabbi Tzvi Yehuda, and it was approved by the military, and in fact, um, he gave the name. Um, Rabbi Amital gave the name uh, Hezder. Um, now, during this time in, in Hadarom, in Hadarom, he also had a 
a relationship with his wife's cousin, his cousin through marriage, Rabbi Eliezer Menachem Shach, who was also a Rebbe in Yeshivat Hadarom. And uh, one of the, you know, it was a fascinating relationship, and it's also one of the stranger things I noticed in Rav Amital's biography, is how his smoking habits keep on making an appearance. Um, it says that Rav Shach used to provide him with cigarettes when they were both Rebbeim at Yeshivat Hadarom in the 1950s. And by the way, though ideologically they were obviously quite different, but they were friendly. Later on in life, Rav Shach met him. Rav Shach was many, many years older than him, was much older than him, um, like many years, like I don't know, 30 years older than him, something like that. They were, they were a different generation, um, but they were very friendly. And, um, and uh, Rav Shach met him years later, and 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 they embraced, and Rav Shach said, Rabbi Yehuda, we're so far apart now that we don't even argue. Uh, so um, now that, then the smoking comes up again when the Gush Yeshiva opened, when the Haritzion opened, he, Rav Amital granted broad autonomy to the students and to set established their own rules for the yeshiva, one of which that the students adopted a no smoking in the base medrash ban. And no, no smoking in the base medrash. And Rav Amital was a smoker, but he, even though he was a Rosh Yeshiva, he complied with the rules which the students had set, and he would not smoke in the base medrash. Uh, then smoking comes up again later on in his life, during the first days of the Yom Kippur War, he, had, he began smoking again. He had previously quit several years earlier, um, and he, or a couple of years earlier, some time earlier, I don't know how many years earlier, um, and he um, he had took on smoking him because of the stress and the what he was going through during the, it was his emotional state, and he continued to smoke for many years afterwards until he finally uh, quit again. So it's interesting that the, during the different times of his life, the uh, smoking, which is you know always a bad habit and bad for one's health, but it came up with him as part of the story of his life and expressed itself in different ways. Now he saw the Hezder Yeshiva, the meaning the military service combined with the Yeshiva uh, learning, is as a, as the ideal. That was his philosophy as lechatchila, and he didn't see it as dealing with a thorny situation in a bidiyevet. Um, and this was, again, one of the many disputes he conducted over the years with Ritzvi Yehuda Kuk of Merkazarav, whom he respected, but they were somewhat ideological adversaries. Um, Rav Amital's vision of religious Zionism and the development of the national religious community differed greatly from the mainstream consensus of Ritzvi Yehuda Kuk. We'll mention some of the other ones, but one of these is the attitude towards military service for yeshiva students. Rav Amital believed that military service should be incorporated into the yeshiva years as an official standard procedure as the ideal development of yeshiva student. Rav Tzviyuda Kuk over at Merkaz Arav, who changed his position over the years, but often was of the opinion that yeshiva students should defer their enlistment almost like the way they it's deferred in, in, in mainstream Haredi yeshivas. So um, he did not... Uh, um, one who fundamentally tie the destiny and identity of Merkaz Harav to the military. But Rav Amital formulated the idea of Hezder. He actually coined the term Hezder and the arrangement with the military. Um, and uh, again, whether he, it was the first Hezder Yeshiva, Karim Biavna or in Hadarom is up for debate, but I'm going to let everyone continue fighting about it, so I'm not going to get into that now. Um, and Rav Amital worked with his father-in-law to Yehuda Meltzer to make this arrangement 
um, for the military track to work, a part-time yeshiva military. Um, later on in the Gush, it would be Hezder Yeshiva as well. He'd facilitate a similar arrangement. And he would actually serve for many years after the Yom Kippur War as the official liaison between the military and the network of Hezder Yeshivas throughout the country. Um, he was always more practical about it rather than ideological. He just said if there's no military service in religious Zionist yeshivas, then, it, then the religious Zionist yeshivas will not produce elite Torah scholars um, because they would be non-Zionist. Um, and he wanted to combine that to have the spiritual leadership from within. Um, and the way to guarantee that would be to combine military service. And as another salient feature throughout his life, the Holocaust experience played a role here as well. He stated pretty emphatically that despite the fact that a generation of survivor youth spent much more time in the camps, obviously away from the yeshiva, um, much more time than a Hezder Yeshiva student would spend in the military. And despite the fact that all these survivor youth spend so much time in the uh, camps, many of them did emerge as great Torah scholars, despite their deficient Torah education during those years. So he doesn't see a big deal in joining the military for a few months as a detriment to uh, producing great Torah scholars in the long run. His father, Suyuda Meltzer, uh, completely subscribed to the idea and was of the same position. In 1965, Rabbi Yehuda Amital moved to Yerushalayim. It's unclear why. I didn't get the story there why. But he settled down in Givat Mordechai and had some educational positions in the city. And he remained there for the rest of his life. Um, he, he lived there in Givat Mordechai in Yerushalayim for the rest of his life. He never moved to the Gush. Um, and um, he was there during the Six-Day War in Yerushalayim. He was very excited um, that at this point in his life he still attached messianic importance to the events, to the events of the Six Day War, but his views would evolve on this issue quite significantly as time went on. And here we come to the next part of our story, which is the establishment and the growth of Yeshivat Har Etzion, the Gush. Um, it was founded uh, in the aftermath of the Six Day War. Um, in fact, the yeshiva opened in November 1968, about a year plus after. There were 30 students congregated in an abandoned Arab Legion barracks on the recently rebuilt Kibbutz Kfar Etzion, uh, a bit over a year after the war. And Rabbi Vital, who was asked by the founders of the yeshiva, he himself didn't initiate it, he was hired, um, and he, um, he, he, was, he, he wasn't even there. He, didn't, he wasn't there the first night of the yeshiva's opening. He sent a message to the group that he'd be coming the next day and would deliver the first year in Masechus Psachim, and he gave them a list of Mara Mekaymas, Talmudic sources, in order to prepare for the first year. And the reason he did that, it was a conscious decision, he wanted to send a very clear me- message to the students at the Gush regarding both his educational philosophy as well as his vision for the yeshiva with the, the implications of this odd initial leadership approach at the outset, that the yeshiva was a product of the students and of the Torah, of the learning there. It's not about him. It's not about him as this leadership, charismatic personality at the center. He wanted to give the message that the yeshiva revolves around the Talmidim, the Gemara study, not a charismatic personality at its core. Now the Gush, 
Gush Etzion, as an area, had been abandoned during the 1948 war. The area was occupied by the Israeli army during the Six-Day War in June 1967, and immediately there commenced this grassroots initiative to resettle the abandoned settlements of the Gush, and many of the activists, activists uh, advocated for a yeshiva to be established at the center of the rebuilding effort, and Rav Mital was the one who was hired to head it. Um, he was promised that the funding would be secured and that he'd be able to focus on being with the Rosh Hashiva and teaching Torah. But right away, his practical side came to the fore. He began asking questions. He wasn't carried away by the grandiose vision. He was very, very grounded in reality, practicality, and that kind of surprised all involved, that he wasn't carried away by the whole thing. He was very, very grounded, both feet on the ground, asked them very realistic questions. And that's how he was his entire life and his career, very sober reality, practical considerations, and he was not carried away by messianic fervor, even in his earlier years when he embraced elements of messianic thought. And this led him to sometimes be pessimistic and overly realistic when others got carried away, and it also led him to be very pragmatic and have a realistic approach when others were aiming for uncompromising or unrealistic ideals, and this realism set him apart in so many ways from others of his contemporaries. And as with so many other things in his life, this facet of his personality too can probably be viewed in the transformative effect of the Holocaust that had on his persona. Um, His educational philosophy um, like his faith was that he always didn't didn't always have the answers to everything. And um, he, as an educator, he encouraged their, his students' independence. He encouraged them to, to think independently, um, to make decisions on their own, to, um, to uh, in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the, his establishment of the yeshiva, he, he was asked by the students what makes the yeshiva unique. So he told them uh, uh, a Hasidic story, a story from the Hasidic movement. He said a story about the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya, and his grandson, the Tzemach Tzedek. And he said that the three were studying Torah in a three-room house. The Alter Rebbe was in the inner room, the Tzemach Tzedek was in the middle room, and, the, and a baby was sleeping in the outer room. The baby began to cry, and the Tzemach Tzedek, who was so engrossed in his studies, did not hear the baby. And the Alter Rebbe did, and he went to calm the baby. And the Alter Rebbe said, if someone is studying Torah and fails to hear the crying of a Jewish baby, then there's something wrong with his learning. So Rami Tal said, if you're immersed in the world of Torah, but you're not engaged with the world around you, then you need to, uh, you need to, then your Torah needs to be improved. Um, So, so he said, uh, so he said uh, that was that was his that was his philosophy, and people were concerned at the beginning would the yeshiva be successful, instead of uh, you know being all like you know gung ho and and, uh, and and yeah it's going to work out this is going to be the best you know like you'd think like an educator would. He said um, I have no guarantees that it will succeed. I have my doubts, but we're going to do our best. In other words, he was very very. Like I said, very pragmatic, um, he, uh, very charismatic, also very warm. He was a father to his students. He had great oratory skills, a great speaker, delivered regular shiurim. He would sing with them, fabreng. He was also the chazan of Rashanim Kippur, other occasions. Um, he in- instituted uh, um, Tanakh and Jewish thought. 
to have be part of the yeshiva curriculum and part of his practicality. He wanted his um, the students to be able to get jobs. So he had a teacher's seminary that was attached to the yeshiva, the Herzog Teacher's Seminary. Um, Purim was always a highlight in the yeshiva, and Rav Amital drank quite freely, would get highly inebriated while celebrating with his beloved students. Um, and then he'd do it again the next day because they would come to him in Yerushalayim and they would celebrate the Yerushalayim Purim the next day. So he would drink twice. When the yeshiva was going into their new building, because the yeshiva was over the green line in the gush, so it took some time before they got permission to build the building and got all the everything done. It was quite bureaucratic. And some more hot-headed students suggested that they seize the property and move in illegally. And it's important to understand that later on in life, Rav Amital would be known as a political leftist, as an opponent to doing things against the government, to protesting against the government. And he's, he's also someone later in life who backtracked from the idea of messianic or redemptive Zionism to more of a Zionism of sovereignty, of, of the reality of the state, not in a redemptive fashion, not as, as a geula. That later on in life he developed. And he was something of an anomaly within the national religious community in this regard. But at this point, in 1969, he was still very much mainstream and he spoke about the beginning of the geula and all that. But he also had this law-abiding streak in him as well. And he refused to seize the property. He said, I'm not going to go in illegally. It's an antithesis to his approach. We don't seize things. We don't go against the wishes of the government or the military. We're not anarchists. And this was his approach to the Six-Day War. Uh, as uh, This was his approach to, uh, to um, in the, in the post-Six-Day War environment. This was his um, um, uh, approach. Um, so the he viewed the Six-Day War as more as a... Um, Salvation, rescue, and Jewish lives were at risk. Um, they, you know, looked like a second Holocaust was going to happen, and and Hashem saved everyone, and no one, and you know, and, and the Jewish there was no a, a, a second Holocaust was averted. That's how he viewed the Six Day War. He less saw it as the uh, as the the reunification of Yerushalayim or the or the liberation of the territories. Um, and uh, he, he, you know, he, he saw it a little differently. Um, and at the yeshiva's groundbreaking ceremony, he expressed his first, he saw and then later expressed his first distaste for politics in general and for politics in the national religious community in particular in the fall of 1969. Um, in, since the ceremony took place just two weeks prior to the elections for the 7th Knesset, the National Religious Party fully exploited it for political purposes. The party bust in hundreds of B'nai Akiva Yeshiva high school students, transforming the ceremony into a show of political strength. Rav Amital was revolted by the political nature of the gathering. He felt that the religious politicians unjustly stole the show from the yeshiva. His treatment at the hands of the organizers served as a painful reinforcement of this feeling. On a raised platform next to the dais sat government ministers and Knesset members. The organizers did not reserve a seat for Rav Amital, the head of the yeshiva in whose honor the ceremony was ostensibly held. Uh, so he, uh, he wasn't happy, to say the least. Um, uh, about a year later or so, he brings in Rav Aaron Lichtenstein, the son-in-law of Rav Salvechik, 
a couple of years after the yeshiva's opening to be, invited him to be a second Rosh Yeshiva there, which is an incredibly impressive and generous offer. They're two very different personalities, different educational approaches, differing priorities, different worldview, different style of teaching, different style of learning, different in so many ways, and yet they had a mutual respect and unified leadership for the next 40 years together. One funny dispute they had in the beginning, and when they moved into the new building, Rami Tal wanted shtenders in the base medrash um, because it's more yeshivish, and Rav Lichtenstein wanted tables in the base medrash to accommodate more sfarim, so they could look up more Reb Chaim briskers, or I guess. Um, but uh, Rav Amital conceded to Rav Lichtenstein in this regard. In 1973, Yom Kippur 1973, the Yom Kippur War breaks out. Uh, the yeshiva emptied out. Uh, most of the yeshiva students were called up to serve. And he lost, Rav Amital lost eight students relatively early in the war. He was devastated, uh, complete devastation at the loss. He compared it to the Slabatka uh, yeshiva after the massacre in 1929 in Hebron. He would visit the families. He visited the wounded. He even went to the front, visited the front to encourage his students whenever he could. On the front, when he was on the front, he actually befriended senior officers in the Israeli army in general, on both fronts, in Sinai and on the Golan. And then finally, at the beginning of the summersman, after things settled down and the yeshiva returned to normal, it held a memorial service for the eight students who were combat fatalities. And Rav Amital delivered a speech which shared his perspective of the aftermath of the Yom Kippur War. And he said that the... Um, the uh, the grief over the Yom Kippur War fallen was so great that it obscured the great salvation that the war brought. And he said, the combination of salvation and sorrow in this world of ours, in which Hashem's name and God's throne are not complete, is a too common combination. Salvation and sorrow usually coexist. It is the way of the world that every great salvation in battle comes with sorrow, and usually at the price of sorrow. But sometimes the grief is so great, so all-encompassing, so deep and so galling, that a man's heart is too narrow to include both feelings, the feeling of salvation alongside the feeling of sorrow. Then it is though the salvation is dwarfed until even it becomes grief. And when he gave that speech, he got severe criticism. Many in the religious Zionist world saw this statement that the sorrow over the fallen obscures the feeling of salvation as defeatism. And looking back, they assessed this statement as the beginning of the changes that occurred within his relation to nationalism and his move to the left. Um, and that may be true, maybe not. But in any event, um, he um, this was his, his position. And he... Um, but just to end off this part of um, of the story where towards the end of his life, he appointed his own successors in the yeshiva, which is also quite unique. And then he goes into retirement and his successors were his close students. Um, and he, uh, he, um, Rav Yaakov Medan and, and Rav Baruch Gigi, I should mention their names, and they were the current Rashi yeshiva along with Rav Lichtenstein's son. And he, he, he um, appoints his successors to prevent any misunderstanding after his passing, and then he himself retires. He said, I'm old, I'm, you know, I'm retiring, and now I'm just going back to be sitting in the base medrash. The last part, which uh, it's, you know, we didn't get to, good we didn't get to, it's politics, is his move, his shift to the left, um, his support for the Oslo Accords, and he was also heavily impacted by 
the Sabra and Shatila massacre, massacres in the uh, first Lebanon war, um, his disputes with Rabbi the Cook and his students, and the Gush Emunim movement, um, many, many reasons that goaded him into um, supporting territorial compromise, peace, uh, security over ideology, the Jewish people over the Holy Land, all these, uh, and, and the idea that he lost eight students in the Yom Kippur War, also the delayed impact of the Holocaust, and there are other factors as well. And either way, he began expressing different views of Messianism and redemption in the context of his times in the state of Israel. Um, and he, you know, moved away from Messianism, which was borderline heretical in the national religious community. And he sustained a lot of criticism, a lot of isolation. Uh, during the first Lebanon war, it was even more, like I said, he saw the Sabra and Shatila massacres as a Chil Hashem, that he needs to speak out against it. He also lost several more students in the uh, first Lebanon war. Many more were injured as well, especially at the Battle of Sultan Yaqub, including the famous MIA, missing in action, uh, Zachary Baumel, who was a student of his as well, very tragic story. Um, and it was during this war that he made another break with mainstream national religious rabbis and public sentiment um, when there were calls in the national religious community to permanently occupy southern Lebanon and build settlements there. And he actually supported a full withdrawal uh, from Lebanon and definitely to get away from uh, uh, Beirut. Um, so he, uh, there was this, this, uh, he eventually establishes a political movement, Maymar, and he gets involved in politics. He had a close relationship with Rabin, and he supported the Oslo Accords, and, um, he was even served as a minister for a short time in the Paris government following the Rabin assassination. So he was quite an iconoclast within the national religious community, and that is definitely another story and element of his legacy. Um, because he was independent-minded and expressed his views at every opportunity, and that's something definitely worth exploring at a future opportunity. So this is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoy.